Why don't people have favorite game designers? My name's Jonathan, and this is The Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. This week, it's all about the people who design the games we love most and the way they put their individual stamp on what they create. Welcome back to The Snakes Cast. Joining me once again this week, the curator of Snakes and Lattes Game Library, Steve Tassie. Hello again. All right. Steve and I have both put in time working retail at game stores back in the late 90s, early 80s, and it wasn't that uncommon for people to ask if we had games by a particular publisher, usually Days of Wonder or Rio Grande. But as I would sometimes tell people who asked that question, nobody goes to a bookstore saying, do you have any books by Random House? And nobody goes to a movie theater saying, are you running any movies by Miramax? People go for names of authors, directors, actors, and I wondered at the time why it was so different for game. I was a lot younger and considerably dumber then, so Steve, <laughs> would you care to enlighten my younger self as to why that is? Well, um, I think you're right on some levels that uh, people don't have a, usually a particular favorite um, publisher or... Designer. I mean, more people, I think, have a favorite designer than have a favorite publishing house. But the fact is, is there that just like Miramax or Pixar or any of the other movie studios no has, has a certain type of film that they tend to do. Right. Marvel si- Studios says hi. Yeah. Uh, similarly, um, a lot of publishing houses in the game world have a certain type of game that they do as well. Uh, for quite some time, Twilight Creations was the game that did, or the game company that did zombies and, and horror themed games. Mm. Other companies have, have started doing it as well. Um, but, uh, at one point in my career designing, uh, I approached, uh, Z-Man Games with something and they said, well, that's more of a Twilight Creations thing. <laughs> uh, and they didn't want to step on toes. So. And this was uh, this would have been back around two thousand two, one ish. Well, no, this was actually later. This was after I already had a relationship with Z Man. This was before Z Man um, got bought out, but after they had already this published my game. Grave so, Robbers. So. Uh, yeah, post post Grave Robbers, uh, I had a different idea for a game, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so and, there. Even even then, um, publisher identity was in some ways more significant. Than designer identity when yes. it came to yeah. branding, I would say so. There's also, I think, uh, other more basic elements. I mean, let's face it; most people um, aren't that into games. True. Therefore, the idea that there is a name of a person who designed this game itself might yeah. be kind of a, oh wow, right? I, I just, and the, and the mainstream, yeah, the mainstream uh, publishing companies. Parker Brothers, Hasbro, Mattel, these companies, they don't bother to credit the designers. Yeah, I mean, not only do they not put the designer's name on the box, they often don't even put it in the credits. Yeah. The instructions inside, which is weird. Yeah, I think so. But I think a lot of those companies do their design in-house. Mm. And so it's the sort of corporate mentality of you made this while working for us therefore this is ours and you don't deserve or need corporations uh, are people my friend yeah uh but with the smaller more independent companies uh and just in in the rise of the hobby 
game industry. Uh, people care more about the artist who created the game. Yeah. They they want to more know. likely to be seen as actual artists, yeah. as actual creators. Yeah, there. I think that it's become far more like uh, the book industry, where uh, people may not care about oh, I want the next Random House or the next Tor right. book, but people are out there wondering uh, when can I get the next Stephen King or the next Dan Brown right. or the next Terry Pratchett. Well, unfortunately, of course, uh, yeah. there will never be another Terry Pratchett, but <sighs> that's the the idea. Uh, and so in the game business, there are people out there who are like, when's the next Stefan Feld game coming out? Mm-hmm. And um, what we want to do in this episode is sort of give uh, our listeners, for the most part, who are relatively new to games or are curious about this, but may not have heard of these people, a sense of the breadth of the kind of names that are out there doing stuff and what those names tend to mean for people who are more heavily into the hobby. Let's talk a little bit about some designers people like and why they like them. One of the first names that a lot of people who got into the hobby back in the late 90s, early 80s wound up running into a lot was a German mathematics professor named Reiner Knizia. Mm-hmm. Dr. K has <laughs> a lot of games on his resume. He yes. may be the most prolific designer of them all. I think Sid Saxon is the only person who gives him a run for... Oh, his yeah, money. Goes even farther back in history. So it's hard, hard to say, but he's definitely up there as one of the most prolific designers. And he definitely has a style. Um, and that style could be, uh, some people would sum it up as pasted on. Um, <laughs> he is the king of games that are published with a theme because thematic games sell more. But the theme is not really at all integrated with the mechanics of the game. It's really a mathematical puzzle, yeah. which has pictures of dragons on some of the pieces. Yeah, and so and that's and that's not to slight it at all. He has some amazing games on the market, some of which are quite thematic, like Lord of the Rings: The Confrontation. Yeah, you can play the War of the Ring in thirty minutes, and it's surprisingly thematic. Yeah. And then you'll have something like Chin which is one of my favorite uh, games. I play it on my iPad all right. the time. I have Ostensibly about setting up territories in uh, ancient, Chinese, Chinese ancient dynasty, China. when it's actually about red and blue and yellow rectangles. Yeah, yeah. It is very much an abstract area control game uh, masquerading as a Chinese warlord game. But it's fantastic. And one of the other things that tends to crop up a lot in Canizia's games is... This, this having to strike a balance between how much you're going to commit to whatever mm-hmm. you're trying to do. And the rule is in a Reiner game, if you overcommit, you're dead. Yeah. If you undercommit, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, Ingenious is probably the game that, um, sort of sums up his philosophy uh, best you have six different colors of pieces that you're scoring points in uh, and you keep track of them separately so you keep track of your red points your purple points your orange points and so on and at the end of the game it's not the color that you've got the best score in that matters it's the color that you did the poorliest in (laughs) that gets compared to everyone else's weakest color. So it's not enough to be good in a few of the colors. You've got to make sure that your worst is better than everyone else's worst. And to me, that really sums up what uh, a Knizia game that uses 
scoring is going to be like something like there's some weird twist that uh that makes you have to think about more than just i want to be the best in this area you've you've got to spread it out you mentioned Sid Saxon earlier. He's kind of uh, the grandfather of modern board game design. Uh, he was he was working mostly uh, in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, and uh, his influence is still very much felt today. Mm-hmm. Um, so many innovations arose from his designs. Uh, the kind of streamlining and the kind of clever choices dependent on other players' choices. Mm-hmm. Um, the the freeform negotiation, uh, the use of components to interact with other components. Yeah. Things in games like Acquire or Byword or, uh, or I'm the Boss. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm the Boss is definitely one of my favorite... Um, I can't call it a party game because it's not really a party no, game, it's but not. it's a, it's a game for up to six people. It's negotiation based. Uh, it has mechanics that you have to understand in order to make your negotiations well, but the game at its heart is all about wheeling and dealing, making deals, stabbing your friends in the back. <laughs> and, um, it, it lives or dies with how much your group of players can actually get into that concept. Cause there are some people like me who love that. And if you've got a group like that, you are going to have a heck of a great time with I'm the boss. But if you have people who don't like sort of, I don't want to say cheating cause I don't mean cheating at the rules, but <laughs> cheating your friends out of deals and, and money and, and backstabbing. If, if you don't like that, stay away from I'm the boss. But if you like it, you're going to love it. And what makes I'm the boss work, I think, is the way that the action cards interact with those negotiations that the players are having, the stop yeah. cards, the, re- the, uh, the, the travel cards. If any, I'd say that if Sid Saxon's design style has a hallmark, it would be providing enough structure to allow people to play and to make choices, but not so much structure that people are constrained by that play. So the focus yeah. is still on the other people sat at the table with you rather than the components that you're working with. Yeah. Um, which is in sharp contrast to one of the brightest lights in today's design field, Stefan Feld, <laughs> uh, a man who creates incredibly intricate mathematical puzzles with all these interlocking pieces and so on. It's like candy for people who enjoy solving problems and figuring yeah. out how to fit things together, the things and squeeze as much efficiency as they can. His games system. are definitely all about what is the board state. Yes. What's, what's on the board. It doesn't matter what your opponents did on their last turn or maybe thinking of doing this turn. It's what's the board look like now and how can you best capitalize on that? And that makes these games ideal for the kind of people who won't enjoy I'm the boss. Yeah. Because you get to do your thing, they get to do their thing. All of you get to do interesting things because all these puzzles are fascinating in the way they fit together. Um, it's just you're not really playing with them. You're sort of each enjoying this, hopefully, enjoying this process of navigating the system together set around the, t- the same table. Um, you go back to early American-style designs. There's a fairly uh, obscure designer named Tom Wham. <laughs> who? How? What can be said of Tom Wham? From my recollections, pretty goofy themes. Um, he used to publish, uh, a, the way that Playboy had a centerfold, uh, of, of a particularly lovely naked lady. Dragon <laughs> magazine would frequently have a centerfold that was a Tom Wham game. It, it was, it was one page. You maybe cut part of it off and cut out tokens, or maybe you just use pennies. Or, you know, the pawns from your sorry set, whatever. But 
along with all the articles about role-playing games and, and all the other stuff that was in Dragon, a Tom Wham game would frequently be part of it. And they were always a little weird. Um, he did awful green things from outer he space. He did the awful right? green yeah. things from outer space. They had weird titles, they had silly themes, and they often had lots of dice, which you would roll on tables that would cause bizarre things to happen. Yeah. Uh, in, a, in a Tom Wham game, there often wasn't a lot of control over what happened to you, but it was almost always going to be silly and ridiculous. And uh, that, that sort of uh, constrained, narrow funhouse was was sort of the the hallmark of his style of design. It really makes me wonder if Wham was a pseudonym uh, <laughs> or whether he was actually born Tom Wham. You know, either way, I think that any that, that modern American style thematic games owe an enormous debt to that because very few people have heard of it. Yeah. And yet, that style of let's see what strangeness is going to happen is is very much something that saw its rise through the joy that people had playing his games. Now, of course, today we also have a lot of hybrids between the European-style games of, uh, of Stefan Feld and Rainer Knizia and the American-style games of Tom Wham, also going back to games like Risk and Monopoly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, at the forefront of these, uh, of these Euro hybrids have been a lot of fantasy flight games yeah. uh, designers, people like Eric Lang, Kevin Wilson, Corey Kaniska. Hybrid games have, uh, have, have really sort of become a major thing in, uh, in recent years, and it's hard to find these days... Uh, in a lot of areas, games that uh, that don't incorporate at least some elements of both. Yeah, it, it's very uncommon to see a strictly Euro game these days or a strictly Ameritrash game, um, especially from Fantasy Flight. Like their their stuff tends to have a, a lot of elements from both camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this began even earlier, too. I mean, Magic the Gathering becoming this huge sort of uh, culture-defining item designed by Richard Garfield, another mm-hmm. mathematics professor. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Garfield's a really fascinating character in a lot of ways as well. He's kind of an ominous grise in the industry. This is a man who does lectures about the nature of chance in games, and mm-hmm. uh, almost from a philosophical point of view. And he's, he's, he's a very, very, very soft-spoken sort of guy, but there's just... He's, He's got this thunderous wisdom that comes out, <laughs> and uh, and playing his games uh, is this amazing maelstrom of precision, mathematically engineered situations and wild, chaotic player interaction. Yeah, things like Robo Rally. Yeah, and Magic the Gathering and uh, King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo. Yeah, the the king of sort of chaos uh, mm-hmm. meets structure, because uh, at least with. Um, with Robo Rally, the chaos tends to be player created mm-hmm. because it's how they choose to use their cards and how that interacts with how the other players have chosen to use their cards. So it doesn't, it feels chaotic, but it doesn't feel like the game is doing something to you. It feels like the other people to you. Whereas, or occasionally you are doing something to yourself because you <laughs> thought you were turning left and you're actually turning yeah, right. And yeah. oh crap, the rest of your whole program is screwed. Always play Robo Rally in a swivel chair. It will make <laughs> your life a million times easier. But then you get something like King of Tokyo, where because it's all about the dice, uh, yes, there's player choice because it uses the Yahtzee style of you roll some dice, you set aside the ones you liked and re-roll the rest. But still, it's just dice chucking. Uh, and that is always going to be a, a chaotic environment. Not only that, but uh, 
This is a Garfield design that in many ways is sort of emblematic of his pushing things forward and refining things because uh, a lot of games where you roll dice and fight people are very, as he would put it, political games where you choose who to fight. King of mm. Tokyo gets around that by mm-hmm. having this King of the Hill sort of mechanic yep. where whoever's in Tokyo is attacking everybody else and everybody else is attacking whoever's in Tokyo. Yeah, no choice. You it's... don't choose who you're going to attack. And that makes the, despite the fact that you're smashing each other all over the place, it doesn't feel personal. Mm-hmm. And it avoids the kind of hurt feelings that show up in it. And that is the kind of cleverness mm-hmm. that I think, uh, and, and, and really insightful approach, not only into mathematics, but into human nature. Although that, that element itself is hardly a new thing in gaming. And Cosmic mm-hmm. Encounter's been doing that for 30 or 40 years Except, now. Except, of course, immediately that what's going to happen in Cosmic Encounter is you're going to decide who is going to join you. In sure, things. there is that element. But the, the basic structure of I'm now going to find out which star system I'm attacking, uh, that being out of your little- Control. You don't have to completely own it. Yeah. Uh, I'd say King of Tokyo refines that further and makes sure. it a, a still safer game with the same feel of carnage and destruction. Antoine Bauza is another designer who uh, really is good at refining things, sanding off all the rough edges. You know how Blizzard games uh, on, on the computer take mm-hmm. an existing idea and just make it really smooth mm-hmm. and really easy to play? Antoine Bauza does that with his stuff. You know, games like uh, Samurai Spirit, Takedo, um, these are games with no text. He hates text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't stand it. Well, I, and I think that's partly from a practical standpoint mm-hmm. in that a, a textless game is open to far more markets without having to change the components of your game. Whereas if you are like Richard Garfield and throw text all over the cards, uh, then you're in a situation where, okay, so now we've got to make a different edition for the French and a different one for the Germans and the Italians and the Russians and so on. And uh, there are other designers doing crazy, innovative stuff like Rob Davio and his legacy games, mm-hmm. uh, Dominic Crapuchette and his penchant for creating party games that even people like us <laughs> can really enjoy because stuff like Wits and Wagers and Say Anything that make you feel like you're playing a game. Yeah. Uh, not just sort of randomly picking things out of a bag. Then there's uh, Donald X Vaccarino. His sort of signature is um, variation. Mm-hmm. Like practically every game he designs will never be the same twice. Yeah, you can play it over and over again because, uh, of course, he's the mastermind behind the Dominion franchise. And so having 25 different decks of cards of which you only ever use 10, uh, that makes just base Dominion imminently, eminently replayable. Uh, and once you start adding all the expansion sets in, you have a game that you could live three or four lifetimes uh, and do nothing from birth to death, but play different configurations of dominion. Uh, and you would never play the exact same set twice. Uh, and then he does it again with kingdom builder by having what, not eight different boards that you'll play on. Each of which has uh, to be turned in a particular direction. Yeah. You're only using four of them. Uh, and then I think a dozen different uh, point scoring cards of yep. which you use three, three or four. Uh, and so every time you play, even just tweaking one of those elements and you have a different game. We did an interview a little while ago with Ignace Trevicek, a uh, Polish designer who uh, created Robinson Crusoe and other games that have really made an effort to incorporate narrative into gameplay, not just mm-hmm. by having stories that you read off of cards, but by creating moments 
in which the players have to make narrative decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The foreshadowing that shows up in the cards in Robinson Crusoe is a wonderful narrative element, which also makes for fascinating gameplay because you know that something's coming, but you don't know when. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, there is the ultimate weirdo of (laughs) uh, the game design world, Vladek Vatil. That's how you pronounce that, is it? Okay. I believe it is. All right. My my Anglo-Saxon mouth just <laughs> says chivattle, and I'm sure that's wrong. But uh, this is a man who will not make the same game twice, even remotely. Every time you pick up a Vlada, a Vlada game, uh, I won't <laughs> tackle the last name again, um, you know it's – the only thing you know is that it's going to be very different from any other Vlada game that you've – uh, picked up. He does heavy duty strategy games. He does real time tile placement games. He's done drawing. Uh, he's, yeah, he's done word party guessing games. party games. Uh, everything he does is different. Uh, and it, for that reason, I am, I'm wary of his new games. Whenever a new Vlada game comes out. You never know out, what you're going to get. I, There's yeah. no guarantee that if you liked his previous stuff, you're going to yeah, like the new stuff. Because I love some of his stuff. I love Galaxy Trucker. I love Code Names, but I can't stand Dungeon Lords. Uh, He's really hit or miss for me, too. It's not a bad game. I won't say that it's a bad game, but for me, I just don't like what some of the mechanics do. Same here. I love Space Alert and Mage Knight. I can't stand Galaxy Trucker. I'll fight you on that one. <laughs> And there's so many other names, too. Brenda Romero, the creator of these fantastic art games like Train that really challenge your ideas of decision and community. You've and got, what is a game? Exactly. It's, it's, the list just goes on and on and on. Um, there's so much to say and just not enough time for it. But I hope this has given you some idea of just the breadth of styles that are out there and some names to take a look at. That'll be quite enough for this week, I think. If you've got a question, hit it with us on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page or tweet it to us at SnakesCast. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. The SnakesCast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it, not the company behind it. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you again next week when we're going to talk about publishers. <laughs>